Hello friends, this is the Real Estate, Wine, and More podcast with me, your humble host, Howard Fletcher. I'm a real estate advisor with Engel and Volkers in Tysons. I help people buy and sell residential real estate in Washington, D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, which is better known as the DMV. The purpose of this podcast is to introduce to you some of the people and places that I find most interesting, that I think you'll find very interesting, and what makes this area one of the best places in the world to live. Recently, I visited the 868 Estate Vineyards in Percival, Virginia. Percival is in Loudoun County, which is in Northern Virginia. It's a suburb of Washington, D.C., and it's also home for some of the best wine that's produced in the state of Virginia and the Mid-Atlantic region. I sat down with one of the owners, Carl DeMano, to discuss the history of the 868 estate. Carl is the winemaker here, so we talked about Virginia weather, about wine grapes, the challenges of buying land for a vineyard, of course, the wine, and the wine industry in this part of the country and in this state. Stay tuned. I think you'll really enjoy this episode. I know I really did. It's a two-parter because we had a long conversation. I'll be releasing part two in a couple of days. This is going to be released on February 1st. Uh, and so you can look for part two this Monday, February 4th. Please subscribe uh, and you'll it'll come up in your feed wherever you get your podcasts, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever. So with no further ado, here's my conversation with Carl DeMano. This is episode one, part one, 868 Estate Vineyard, Engineering Wine. Okay, well, I'm here at the beautiful 868 Estate Vineyard in Percival, Virginia. I had a great drive in. We had a snow a couple of days ago, and it's really beautiful out here. And I'm here with Carl DeMano, who is the president and winemaker of this uh, great place and welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Uh, let's start out by just telling me a little bit about your background. Uh, who are you? And uh, and then tell me about the history of the estate. Okay, that's that's quite a bit. Well, I, uh, I'm i the winemaker here. I'm the, I'm the grape grower. I'm one of the partners. Uh, I started out uh, going through school and graduating with a degree in chemical engineering. Uh, and then leaving the Northeast to go to New Orleans. Uh, I spent uh, eight years in New Orleans, four of which I really enjoyed, <laughs> four of which I was really trying to get out of New Orleans. Wow, and now uh, what years were that was that? Um... So I would have, would have, I did graduate in 89, uh, mm -hmm. uh, then moved to New Orleans. I was there till the end of uh, 1997. Mm -hmm. I was a couple of years in and I met my wife, uh, Moved her down, so eventually got her a job at Tulane. We both uh, went through Tulane, me in the night program to get an MBA because I needed a hobby uh, to get me off the streets in New Orleans at night. <laughs> uh, my wife ended up working there and also getting an MBA from Tulane. So, so when I say I enjoyed four of the eight years, uh, the first couple of years were fun. And then I was really trying to get out. And then my wife came down and those first couple of years were fun. Uh, and then, uh, then after that, it was trying to find another opportunity, which I did. I ended up moving to California uh, with Chevron, uh, taking a position 
uh, more an executive level, uh, not executive, but a strategic analyst, which um, really is what I wanted to do and really was a horrible job. Hmm. Um, I knew I was in trouble when uh, I did a projection for the year. My manager came and said, how can you say we're going to lose money? It's because we're going to lose money. This is a terrible business. Um, a year later, he came back to me and said, how could you have said we were going to make money in this? I said, because you told me to go back and change my assumptions. And I changed them, and I was right the first time, and I need to find something else to do with my time uh, because building PowerPoint presentations for a living wasn't uh, really going to do it for me. When I was in New Orleans, I was in the refinery, and at the end of the day, we had a product whether it be sulfur, whether it be gasoline, whether it be diesel, whatever. And turns out, as much as I wanted to get away from that, I missed it. Uh, I missed having something concrete that I had made at the end of the day, uh, which is a segue into uh, the wine industry. Uh, while we're living in Northern California, we're living in Oakland, we're spending all our time in the, in the wine industry. And having seen that and then seeing a harvest, saying, okay, there, those are pipes and materials handling and reactors and all the stuff I already know, only on a smaller, uh, less dangerous scale, uh, I can do that. Um, and so the idea of getting into the wine industry was born there. That's interesting. You're the fourth person who's either a chemical engineer or a chemist that I know who now makes wine. There, um, yeah, I can, I can see that. I've come across a few... Uh, a couple of doctors, a couple of anesthesiologists, people with, with that background. Though, uh, when I did eventually leave Chevron, I went to UC Davis, University of California at Davis, in their, in their enology program, their winemaking program. And, uh, but at the end of 2003, I came back to the East Coast. Um, I, like you, was, was a grad student who was a little older. Nobody was going to hire me. <laughs> as executive VP of winemaking right. Um, right out of school, so I had to do something else. And that something else was to come to the wild, wild east, uh, where I could be uh, both the bottle washer and tank cleaner and the executive VP of production, at, all at the same time. It was an opportunity to, uh, to wear all the hats. Now, talk, you know, another common thread in these interviews that I've done is UC Davis. Quite a few, I, I, I guess their program is excellent, quite a few winemakers I know uh, or I've met uh, have, attended, have gone through that program as well. Um, they tell me that, uh, and these are all people that make wine now on the East Coast, that winemaking in California is much different than winemaking here in the, on the, in the East Coast because of the grapes and how you can't necessarily manipulate the uh, the condition, the growing conditions here, you're so, you're sort of a uh, at the mercy of the weather here. Where in California, it's not as much. Maybe wildfires, but not the weather. Um, is that? Would you concur with that point of view? To some degree, I mean, winemaking is winemaking mm -hmm. now in California and regions like it. It's effectively a desert, um, so you're less worried about disease. Uh, you have some control because you can control irrigation. Do you, do you want to stress the vine a little? Do you want to uh, give it some water and then give it some growth and get some, some uh, 
some canopy and, and such as that. Where here, you're going to get rain and humidity every year, every summer, uh, so that is a little bit out of your control. Uh, the only other thing in California is because it is dry, because it is nearly ideal for growing grapes, uh, you, know, you can decide to pick early, decide to pick late, hang the fruit if you want. Uh, you know, the threat of disease setting in uh, is a lot less, so you can make some decisions where here you've got a storm rolling in, you have to pick grapes, you don't really have a choice. Uh -huh. Or a storm just rolled in and the disease is setting in, you have to go and pick grapes. So, so you can be a little more selective there, but at the end of the day, you know, winemaking is winemaking. Uh, those who come to the East Coast and weather a few vintages see that uh, it's harder here. Yes. Um, you know, I will, I will talk to folks back in California who complain that they got a, a tenth of an inch of rain in October, and my God, what's going to happen? The tenth of an inch of rain we call, you know, 10 to 11 o'clock on Monday, and then it just continues on from there. So it's, uh, yeah, it's not really for the faint of heart here. Uh, California, within reason, you can usually rely on a vintage being similar. You know, you'll get some vintages that are better than others. Here on the East Coast, you have true vintage variation, uh, like you would see in some of the regions in France, even more so. You know, 17 was a very nice vintage. 18 was a washout. Uh, you know, 2011 was a very challenging vintage where, you know, the next three after that were, were reasonably good. So, you know, you're, you're going to have some challenges here that you won't see out in California. I saw on your, uh, your website, you, uh, I guess you opened in 2012? That's right, 2012. Now, yeah. Is that when you first planted or is that when you first came to market with? No, actually both. Uh, you know, we, so I met my partners in 2010, mm -hmm. uh, the Delisos and the Sharons. Uh, they were actually looking at the old Oasis mm -hmm. property. Um, and I had been brought in by the realtor there to, to kind of advise on, on the winery as a consultant. Now, just for context, where is that in respect to here? You know, I'm supposed to know where that is. Um, it's probably 35 miles southeast of here, okay. uh, out of uh, uh, Route 222. So Rappahannock is out in that area, and Namada, and, and, right. and wineries like that. And was kind of before me coming back to the East Coast, but for a while it was a big deal. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a place to be. They had concerts. They flew in helicopters. Um, you know, it wasn't the best vineyard site in the world, and I, I don't know that it was the best wine, but it was it was quite a big deal. And there's probably a, an entire podcast story in there. Um, you know, I like talking about buying yeah, land. Yeah, you know I mean? so, so you, you know. Uh, so I met my partners there in 2010, and we scoured Loudoun and Fauquier looking for a property. Uh, and it wasn't easy. Yeah. It was, and you know, this is 2010. You're coming off the the crash. You would think there'd be wineries for sale, there'd be land for sale, and it was surprisingly little of that. So it took us a while. We actually Just to find land that was available that was being offered 
for, for sale? Exactly. Okay. As a matter of fact, we, uh, Mark Malik, who, who has a vineyard and is now Maggie Malik's Wine Caves, yes, is a realtor. Mm -hmm. And we had asked him at one point to start knocking on doors because what was posted for sale was, was inadequate. Uh, that didn't turn out, but we had we had come to this property and we liked it. We liked the top, topography, um, and it was originally ninety acres. Uh, wasn't where we are now on Grandale. Grandale's an additional thirty acres we we acquired later, so it had nothing on it. it had home sites on it, fourteen home sites, uh, and we were putting in an offer and then found out it had an easement on it um, because the previous owner couldn't develop, the market crashed, so he sold the development rights. And uh, so development was not a problem, we didn't care, but it was a restriction on events. So he said, oh, if we go over there, we build a winery, we can't have outdoor events, so we walked away from it. Um, looked at properties along Route 15, along the Potomac River, and ended up coming back to this one, pulling out the easement and going, getting in touch with the conservatory uh, and saying, okay, wh what does this mean we can't have events? The other, one of the other restrictions was, was you couldn't sell anything. You couldn't have, what if we grow the grapes and sell that? Well, yeah, you can do that. Uh, what if we have a building and our events are inside? Well, yeah, you can do that. What if there's a patio and everyone's outside, but they're not? Yeah, I think that'd be so. We're like, okay, maybe we can make this work. Right. Uh, so, put in an offer and purchased 90 acres uh, in 2011 oh. and um, met the neighbors. The neighbors were a Grandale Farm restaurant uh, and thought, okay, food and wine paired together. Uh, would be great. That's the way you should have wine uh, and be a unique offering for this area. So uh, met with those folks and put together a plan to merge. And then in February of 2012, uh, we merged with Grandale, which gave us a couple of months to get ready for our May 2012 opening. So this room we're in now, which is uh, 868 Tasting Room, was a classroom that was turned into a dinner theater. After February, we got in here, we built the bar, we put up the racks, um, finished out the kitchen so you couldn't really see it, and, uh, and then opened on Mother's Day in 2012. Wow. And so were there any vines at all on the property when you... No, that, that was the, that was, you did answer, you did ask that. So we did open and we planted uh, right around the same time. We planted vines in, 2000, in April of 2012 and then opened the doors here in May of 2012. So the initial planting was about 10 acres and with the idea that we would sell other people's wine uh, for the first couple of years to get, to get started. So, so I had come to the East Coast in 03, end of 03. I was working at Sugarloaf Mountain Vineyard in, in Dickerson, Maryland. Yeah. there? Yeah. So I planted that initial vineyard, designed the winery, built the winery there. That's beautiful out there. And apparently I was bored because I started my own label as well. Okay. So my wife and I started a label called Revolution. Uh, so we had inventory. Okay. So part of our buy-in to this project 
was to bring uh, the Revolution wine, to bring that inventory. So we started off selling Revolution. Uh, we started off selling um, uh, some uh, Chatham Creek wine, because I've, I've known John Winter down there for, for quite a long time. Uh -huh. uh, we brought in some Barbersville. We bought some bulk wine that fall and put our own label on it and started you know, getting some traction there. Okay. So, uh, so yeah, that's how we started. So the planting in 2012 yielded its first crop in 2014. So 14 was our first vintage off this property. And, uh, and we've steadily moved toward being 100% estate uh, grown uh, since then. 2017, we're about 95% grown here. The other 5% came from our neighbors down the road. So we're 100% Loudoun County uh, and 95% grown on the property. Wow. Okay, we're gonna take a break and then we'll come back. I will, I'm gonna ask you a little bit about the weather we've had lately and some other things, okay? Okay. As I said in the beginning of the podcast, I'm a real estate advisor with Engel & Volkers. You know, I've heard it said that if you throw a rock in the DMV, you'll either hit a lawyer, a doctor, a politician, or a realtor. Sometimes you can hit the proverbial two birds with one stone if you have a pretty good arm. I do, but I gave up throwing rocks a long time ago. My point is, is that there's not a shortage of real estate representation here. That said, when the time comes for you to buy or sell your home, or purchase that second or third property, I'd like you to contact me and my colleagues at Engel & Volkers in Tyson's, and let me tell you why. Since 1977, Engel & Volkers has been selling some of the world's most exclusive properties throughout Europe, Asia, and North America. As a result, it's become one of the world's strongest brands. Washington, D.C. is a very international city. Many of my past clients come from across the globe, and they've often asked me if there was an Engel & Volkers office here in the DC area because they had used them in transactions back home and they were familiar with the brand, they liked the brand and they hadn't seen a sign or an office or anything here. And I was relieved to tell them no, since at the time I was with another brokerage. A few years back, Julie Brody, my broker and a pretty awesome person, opened an office here in Tyson's and another one in Lansdowne. So I investigated the brand and I learned about the myriad of services they provide their clients. And I knew right then that I needed to bring that level of service to my clients. So I am thrilled to now be part of their team. Listen, the easiest way for you to see the excellence and scope of the real estate services we provide, besides inviting me to your house for an appointment, which I know you want to do, is to download my app. It's free, it's easy, and here's how you do it. Just text E.V. Howard, that's E-V-H-O-W-A-R-D, to 844-878-4445. It's also the easiest way to connect with me by text, email, or direct phone. You can do all of that right through the app. Again, that's E.V. Howard at 844-878-4445. Don't worry if you don't have a steel trap mine or if you didn't get a chance to write that down, the number and code are gonna be in the show notes. Or you could just listen to this awesome podcast again and again. Okay, enough about me, let's get back to the show.
that's it for part one of my conversation with Carl Damano of 868 Estate Vineyards. I'll be posting the second half on Monday, February 4th. I hope you tune in. Something that you can do that will help me a whole bunch is to please rate this episode. And if you liked it, please subscribe. Also, let your friends know about it and ask them to give me a listen too. I would very much appreciate it. The Real Estate Wine and More podcast is a production of the Fletcher Group Incorporated, made in association with Engel and Volkers, Tysons, and Lansdowne. Music for this episode was supplied by Cadillac Grip. If you're ever in the Boulder or Denver, Colorado area, please go see Cadillac Grip play. Because if you ain't hip to the grip, you just ain't hip. The Real Estate Wine and More podcast was written, recorded, engineered, produced, and screwed up by me. I'm Howard Fletcher, your friendly neighborhood real estate advisor with Engel and Volkers. Thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye.